Welcome to Copyright Clearance and its podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, July 13th, 2018. Our weekly guest on the show is Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, who joins me today from his New York City office. Welcome back, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So today is our first podcast since a two-week holiday break, and we have a lot to catch up on. And let's start with perhaps the biggest headline to come out while we were away. On the eve of the July 4th holiday, Barnes & Noble fired its CEO with no warning and little information as to why. Tell us about that. And now, 10 days later, what do we know, if anything? Well, you know, we still really don't know anything. As our listeners no doubt know by now, on the eve of July 3rd, Barnes & Noble sent out a statement that they had released their CEO, Demos Perneros, and they stressed in the dismissal that, in the statement that the dismissal was not due to any disagreement, and I'm going to quote here, not due to any disagreement with the company regarding its financial reporting, policies or practices, or any potential fraud relating here to. But in addition to being fired immediately, Parneros also got no severance, which obviously suggests cause. So obviously on top of the company's poor performance going into your fourth CEO in five years, I think, I think the publishing community was a little stunned and a little concerned. But then again, you know, we're so used to bad news coming out of the Barnes & Noble camp that nobody really seems to be panicking. Well, you know, you're right. I think, Andrew, there's a bit of a shell shock atmosphere when it comes to Barnes & Noble, sadly. And it is, though, the dog days of summer. The rumor mill should have uh, churned up something by now, has it? Well, you know, the rumor mill has been churning, no doubt about it. But nothing here really beyond a guess. And that is, I think, quite surprising. You, know, you would think that someone at Barnes & Noble would have taken time to explain this to some of the publishers, at least the biggest publishers, uh, their, their most important accounts, and that someone there might have talked. But you know, really nothing, absolutely nothing by now. Now, obviously the first thought that many people had, and I've seen this all over the place in listservs and elsewhere, was that this might be a Me Too thing. There might be a sexual harassment component here. But I'll note that the statement says that Parneros did not violate any company policies. And surely Barnes & Noble has a policy against sexual harassment, right? So I would think that's probably not what's going on here. But long story short, I have no idea what happened, except that I can say to me, even this firing was handled pretty badly by Barnes & Noble, you know, from a PR point of view. Um, they seem to have taken the old device, advice of putting the story out with the trash, you know, late on a weekend, on a holiday weekend at that. But Come on, this is not a story that you bury. This is a story that you try to get in front of. And even if you don't have a lot of information, throwing it into the trash before a holiday weekend, all that did was really set tongues wagging over the July 4th holiday. Uh, you know, I don't know if they thought people would just be heading off to the Hamptons or wherever, and they'd be like, oh, Barnes & Noble just whacked their CEO. Well, another gin and tonic, please. But let me tell you, it was a source of speculation for days on end, and still is, aided by gin and tonics. <laughs> All right, well, moving away from the bar for the time being, we are about halfway through, more than halfway through the 2018 year. And aside from the shaky news from BNN, how is everything shaping up for publishers so far in 2018? Yeah, well, so far it's been decent. On the PW site, our listeners can read about the first half in terms of sales. And also we have a feature up about what specific books have sold best through the first half of 2018. But overall, the news is pretty good as both as unit sales of print books are up 4% in adult nonfiction. Uh, and that's the industry's largest major category. And overall, they're up 2% over 2000. 
2017. Obviously, adult nonfiction is benefiting from the current political environment. You know, the first half of this year, uh, we saw Macmillan especially score big. They had two huge big bestsellers with Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury and James Comey's A Higher Loyalty. And off the political spectrum, there's Magnolia Table by Joanna Gaines, uh, which sold almost 676,000 copies in the first half of the year. And that put it in second place overall, just behind Michael Wolff. Meanwhile, Fiction's having a bit of a harder time, but the recent release of The President is Missing by Bill Clinton and James Patterson has already juiced the half-year numbers there. And print sales and juvenile nonfiction are also up about 7% over 2017. So good news there, too. There are also some interesting trends, I think, by format. Hardcover sales continue to do very well. They posted another solid gain over last year. Trade paperback sales are about flat. Flat was always, you know, pretty good news in the publishing environment. But unit sales of mass market paperbacks, which have just been falling off a cliff in recent years, finally showed signs of bottoming out, with units off just 3% compared to 2017. Uh, In the first half of 2017, they were down 9%. So we've seen a bit of an improvement there. So it's not all politics. I do expect a hefty dose of politics to round out the year, obviously. There's a couple of big titles that are still on the schedule for this year. Uh, And maybe more importantly, though, is our president is in Europe now, meeting with Vladimir Putin alone, and we have a new Supreme Court justice that prepares to hit the Senate. I think we can expect a lot of political news and a lot more political books coming forward. And I also think that, you know, it's sort of a double-edged sword for publishers. There's, they're, they're doing extremely well selling these titles, but there's also a bit of uncertainty in the world that comes along with this presidency. So I, I think that has to be a concern. When copyright clearance says Beyond the Book returns, Andrew Albanese wonders what a new justice on the U.S. Supreme Court may mean for the media industry. I'm Christopher Keneally with Copyright Clearance Center's Beyond the Book. Publishers Weekly Radio has the very best in book talk directly from New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. Join us every Friday for a full hour of exciting author interviews, best-selling books, and expert reports on the nuts and bolts of publishing. Every week, we make sure that you have the inside story of your favorite story. Take a listen at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. I'm Christopher Keneally for CCC's Beyond the Book. It's Friday, July 13th, 2018, and Andrew Albanese of Publishers Weekly joins me with news and insights on the world of publishing. While we were away, Andrew, President Trump nominated Brett Kavanaugh to fill the vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court, left by retiring Justice Anthony Kennedy. As the nation and the Senate ponder how Kavanaugh might rule on a wide array of issues, you reported this week on legal concerns affecting the publishing community, specifically that Kavanaugh has ruled in the past against the principle of net neutrality. Tell us then what the publishing world may expect from a Justice Kavanaugh. Yes. Yeah, so I did spend some time this week looking at how Brett Kavanaugh, who's been obviously nominated to replace Anthony Kennedy on the high court, might come down on some issues affecting the publishing industry. And apparently I'm not alone in doing that. I noticed that Bloomberg Law this week uh, wrote an article in which it looked at a number of cases and pointed out that Kavanaugh actually has a sizable judicial 
record on copyright and IP-related issues, and that the overarching theme they found was that he seems to take a really narrow view of what regulatory agencies can do without explicit direction from Congress. And I think that's notable because, as we all know here, as we follow copyright closely, that a lot of our IP regimes today are enforced. They are regulatory. Uh, and there are a lot of solutions that are actually being proposed for the digital future that are regulatory in nature. So I'm still doing a lot of reading. Um, but for now, I'd also point out to readers an interesting piece by Eric Gardner at The Hollywood Reporter this week, who suggested that Kavanaugh's views on the, quote, administrative state not to be confused with the deep state, or maybe it is, could mean a rude awakening for the entertainment industry and the regulatory schemes that they depend on. And I'll quote Gardner's piece here. Let me pull this up in front of me. He says, of course, this could all cut the other way, too, as the industry might enjoy less regulation itself. But Gardner concedes, nevertheless, Kavanaugh's appointment to the Supreme Court could inject instability for the entertainment industry or at least not stand in the way of marketplace upheaval triggered by technological advancements. And I think that's a pretty astute observation by Gardner, to which I'd only add instability compared to what? You know, as our listeners will recall from Book Expo this year, the AAP and the Authors Guild and the Copyright Alliance apparently already believe there's a Google-led anti-copyright conspiracy afoot. So who knows how they're going to react to Kavanaugh's nomination. And on net neutrality, you note in your article this week that Kavanaugh had some very interesting views there. Tell us about those and why you think this all matters. Yeah, so thanks to the great James Grimmelman who who dug this up, I had a chance to read uh, Kavanaugh's opinion on uh, on net neutrality. In fact, it uh, his opinion, I shouldn't say it was an opinion in the case, it was actually a dissent in a case, uh, but it was quite enlightening. Uh, this was all through a dissent that the judge delivered in connection with a 2017 order that denied a motion for an on-bank review by the full U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia in a case called United States Telecom versus FCC. And I won't bore you with the details of that case, even though it's a pretty interesting case. I'll just say that that's the decision that actually upheld the legality of the FCC's 2015 order, which mandated net neutrality. Now, these kinds of on-bank denials are pretty routine, and they're often delivered with little, if any, comment. But in this case, the court's denial of an on-bank hearing here was accompanied not only by Kavanaugh's dissent, but also by a lengthy concurrence by his colleague, Judge Cerise Srinivasan, in direct response to Kavanaugh. So just incredible stuff to see these two justices going you know, back and forth at each other here. So basically, Kavanaugh has two problems with net neutrality. The first is that he believes the FCC overstepped its authority in establishing such major rules, but they did not. You know, the court held that this was within its purview, and this is in line with what we just talked about, too, right? That Kavanaugh has this narrow view of what regulatory agencies can do without explicit direction from Congress. But the second, more eye-opening claim is that Kavanaugh held that the FCC's 2015 order trampled on Internet service providers' First Amendment rights. Okay, so any mention of the First Amendment always gets my attention, Andrew Albanese. What was Kavanaugh driving at there? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, in this, it was a really a strained argument, if you read it. And, you know, in, in this argument against net neutrality, he went on to liken ISPs to bookstores, and he called the FCC's 2015 order half-baked and foreign to the First Amendment. And uh, I have a quote here. He writes, if a bookstore or Amazon decides to carry all books, may the government then force the bookstore or Amazon to feature and promote all books in exactly the same manner? That's sort of a stretch to compare ISPs to bookstores. But he 
notes that without sh- a showing of market power, in other words, that these uh, providers exercise great power over the market, the government must keep its hands off editorial decisions of internet service providers. And he goes on to write that if market power does not need to be shown, then what's to stop the government from, you know, regulating the editorial decisions made by Facebook and Google and MSNBC and Fox and the New York Times of YouTube and Twitter? Can the government really force those companies, Facebook and Google, to become common carriers? Kavanaugh does go on to acknowledge that net neutrality rules reflect this common fear that the real threat to free speech today comes more from private entities like ISPs and not from the government. But still, he insists that the First Amendment is a shield for ISPs against government intrusion into what is transmitted or not transmitted over their networks. How internet service providers exercise editorial discretion is up to them, not the government, Kavanaugh concludes. The government can't tell internet service providers how to exercise their editorial discretion about what content they carry any more than they can tell Amazon or Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C. what books to promote. Now, this is completely misrepresents what the net neutralities are. And Judge Srinivasan, as only a fellow judge can do, points this out. Both of Kavanaugh's arguments are misconceived, but he points out that Kavanaugh is especially out on a limb with his First Amendment stuff. In a nutshell, he points out that the First Amendment does not protect the right to censor, basically. He writes that... The FCC is well within its rights to stipulate that users who sign up to access the Internet can access the whole Internet, not just parts of the Internet that the owners of the pipes agree with. Of course, as of June 11th, the FCC rules, the new FCC rules run into effect, and ISPs are now free to engage in exactly that kind of behavior. They can block or throttle or degrade traffic as long as they disclose to consumers that they're engaging in those practices. As we've discussed on this program before, however, not a done deal. The fight over net neutrality continues. And beyond net neutrality, this all matters. This all really, I think, is important stuff for the publishing community because free speech obviously is an important issue and it's only going to grow in importance and get thornier in this unruly digital age, in this age of fake news. So I hope this to me, rather startling view expressed by Kavanaugh draws at least some scrutiny for the Senate when he undergoes his hearings, because to me, it reflects, at least from what I see written here, a view of the First Amendment and a view of corporate power that I think could be particularly dangerous if it were to hold. Well, it's my editorial discretion to invite Andrew Albanese of Publishers Weekly to join me every Friday on CCC's Beyond the Book to share insights on the world of books and media. Thanks for joining me today, Andrew, and talk with you next week. My pleasure, as always. Publishing success stories from the digital age are few and far between. In scholarly publishing, so-called hybrid open access is one such rare bird. In a recent guest post for the Scholarly Kitchen, Rob Johnson contemplated the dilemma at the heart of hybrid open access business models, conceived as a short-term way station for closed subscription journals. The hybrid model has instead established itself firmly in the scholarly publishing environment. The hybrid model is is much easier and much less risky in that you retain your existing subscription models and you just allow people to pay article by article where they want to make it open access. And of course, the contentious part of this is people are then paying or institutions, funders, authors are paying additional amounts uh, to make articles open access over and above the subscriptions. And I think that's where this has become a contentious business model in, in the recent past. And that was one of the things that I wanted to draw attention to in the post. Checking out of the hybrid hotel. 
next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center, a global leader in content management, discovery, and document delivery solutions. Through its relationships with those who use and create content, CCC and its subsidiaries Rights Direct and Nexus drive market-based solutions that accelerate knowledge, power publishing, and advance copyright. Beyond the Book co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. I'm Christopher Keneally. Join us again soon on Beyond the Book. Thank you.